Now, so far in our series on Nehemiah, we've heard about the dreadful state of Jerusalem, the prayerful and courageous determination of Nehemiah to do something about it, and the astonishing response of the people living in Jerusalem, who pulled together to rebuild the wall in 52 days. And Tim has drawn our attention to the parallels with today, the dreadful state of the world, and the way God can work through his prayerful, courageous, and determined people if they pull together. But today, we're thinking about what the people of Jerusalem did next. What did they do after they'd built the walls? Which was basically to ask themselves a question. If our God is so powerful that he can change the minds of foreign kings and overcome everyone plotting against us, we're going to hear more of that next week, how come Jerusalem got into this state in the first place? So I'm going to look at, start by looking at the same question. Then I'm going to look at why it's relevant to us today and how we can learn from what the people of Jerusalem did when they found out the answer. And then I'll conclude by looking at the relationship between confession and worship and finding how they relate to today's title, which is Repent. So let's start by looking at the six-hour service that we heard Mark speaking about. How would you feel about a six-hour service? Standing outdoors. Actually, we might think standing outdoors isn't much different from sitting in St. Matt's, given our amazingly temperamental heating system. It is warmer today, but the heating has been on for 48 hours. And obviously, Jerusalem is much warmer than Bath. But even so, six hours feels like quite an ask. Actually, though, the people of Jerusalem are getting used to it by the time they get to chapter 9, because they've been hearing the law read for weeks, hours at a time. The priests stood up on a platform, specially constructed so that the people could see them, just like Mark stood in the pulpit for us today. And the Levites went around the assembled crowd, explaining what was being read. I assume that they sort of took breaks in the reading to do this, and that they didn't talk over the reading, but it doesn't actually spell that out. And when the people heard the law of Moses for the first time in chapter 8, they wept because they realized that they hadn't been obeying it. And that this might have something to do with the state the walls had got into. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites had to go round the people, trying to cheer them up, to encourage them that all wasn't lost. And this is where we get that wonderful quote that we often say to each other. Do not be discouraged, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And they told them to go away and celebrate instead just because they had heard and understood the law. Maybe we should have a party at the end of every service. 
And finally, after seven days celebrating the special feast of tabernacles or booths, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading in, they come together for a solemn assembly at the start of chapter 9. And they're dressed for a funeral in sackcloth and ashes. I did think about wearing a black top and a black cardigan and black trousers. I just decided against it today. You can take authenticity too far. They're dressed for a funeral because this is time to stop celebrating that they at last understand the law. It's time to start applying it. And the first thing they do is separate themselves from all the foreigners living in Jerusalem. And the second thing they do is listen to the law some more, standing up for three hours, because that's what they do by now. And the third thing they do is confess their sins and worship God for three more hours. It's quite a simple service plan. So let's start by looking at the confessing. Confessing means telling the truth about what you've done, even if it's something that's not very good. Or it could be telling the truth about what you believe, even if that might be difficult for other people. And nowadays, we tend to assume that confessing is always about something bad, but it can still mean admitting something that is good is true. I think we can assume that Freddie confessed his love for Serena when he asked her to marry him. Otherwise, she might have said no. And so on behalf of the people of Israel, Ezra confesses or admits that for well over a thousand years, whether they were under tremendous pressure or living in peace, they kept turning away from God and doing their own thing. And he also confesses or admits that God was very patient and rescued them time and time again. And I wanted to have the whole passage read so that we could hear that repeated pattern of behavior. But God was patient. But God had compassion over and over again. But eventually, God did what he had promised he would do if his people didn't obey his law. He handed them over to neighboring kings. But even then, Ezra says, God is still merciful because he didn't annihilate us completely. And Ezra sums it all up in verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you, because he's talking to God, have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our ancestors didn't follow your law. So we're slaves today. Slaves in the very land you gave us. How ironic is that? He didn't actually say that. That was me. And he concludes, we are in great distress. And the people all agree. They've been listening to the law for weeks. They have heard the whole sorry tale. They agree that they're unrighteous 
and they deserve everything they got. And when we hear it all laid out like this, we wonder why God didn't simply annihilate the Israelites. Well, the reason is that they're his plan for the salvation of the world. From the very beginning, God's plan was to bless all nations through Israel. God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Just as we individually are made in the image of God, so the people of Israel were meant to be a people in the image of God. Holy, righteous, strong, loving, caring for the weak and vulnerable, wielding justice, forgiving each other, and living in peace. And God also said through Moses, observe my laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. The prophets take it a step further. Isaiah says, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. Jeremiah says, all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. When the Israelites sin, it's not just God's power that is thrown into doubt. It's God's nature. When the people of God steal and cheat, rape, pillage and fight, son against father, brother against brother. It makes their God look the same as all the other nation's false gods. Small-minded, vindictive, unreliable, weak. Not worth believing in. The disrepair of Jerusalem is the evidence of the people of Israel's sin. The disrepair of Jerusalem brings God's name into disrepute. Bringing God's name into disrepute is something that definitely needs confessing and repenting of. But the role of representing God to the nations has been handed on from the people of Israel with the coming of Jesus. Their story was all leading up to the Messiah. I believe God still has a plan for them. But the responsibility of representing God and his plan for salvation now rests somewhere else. In the church. We are supposed to be Christ's body in the world. People are supposed to look at us and see Christ. Holy Righteous, strong, loving, caring for the weak and vulnerable, wielding justice, forgiving each other, and living in peace. Do they? If we feel at all saddened 
by the state of the church today and wish things were different, we, the church with a capital C, so the whole church, need to repent. To turn away from what's unhelpful, wrong, and downright sinful and turn back to God to put him first. It seems an enormous task, doesn't it? But the book of Nehemiah is a model for how to move beyond our despair at the state we're in into renewed faith and powerful witness. It shows us how to do more than simply confess. It shows us how to repent. But the first step is indeed to confess. We need to be honest about the story of the church, the good as well as the bad. I find this sermon really hard to write because I kept getting distracted <laughs> by all the things that drove me mad about the church today, about the church that I went to 20 years ago, about the church of the Victorians, about the um, Catholic Church in the 11th century, about the Crusades, which happened somewhere around then, and about everything else that had gone wrong. I did not think that was a good thing to talk about in my sermon. So I'm going to try and paint broad brushstroke picture. Ezra described the people of God like this in verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember. He was talking about the people of Israel, but he could have been talking about the church. Now, Paul is going to be looking at the importance of remembering in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to really think about that today. But some of these other characteristics I'm just going to think about briefly. Being arrogant and stiff-necked. That's pride. Thinking you're better than other people. Not really caring what other people think or want or need as long as we're okay. And sometimes it's really easy to give that impression by not doing things. For example, we think we're a welcoming church and I think we are quite welcoming. But vegans have to drink their ethically sourced kingdom coffee black. And wheelchair users have to haul themselves up our steps by climbing out of their wheelchairs onto their crutches. We have got a ramp, Tamsin, but the last few times it's been used, it has not actually proved possible to get the wheelchair up it. We've got a ramp, but it doesn't work very well because it's so steep and it's two separate things that you have to get the wheelchair lined up exactly right. And the old ladies pushing their elderly friend up the wheelchair had to give up because they thought they were going to be run over backwards. So we have a ramp, but is it actually fit for purpose? Maybe you think there aren't enough vegans or wheelchair users to worry about it. They're not in our church. Look, we haven't got maybe one or two vegans. We've got no wheelchair users. Is it surprising? What does it say about our attitude to people who are differently abled and have different dietary preferences to us that we don't cater for them?
Another word Ezra used, disobedience. That bas it mean, basically means thinking the rules don't apply to us. People don't usually set out to disobey a rule. They just think, well, I'm so good or I'm so clever. That, that's for the common people. It doesn't apply to me. We really hate people who think like that, don't we? I'm, Boris Johnson found out how much we hate people like that. But what about passing on gossip as prayer requests or obeying the speed limit when, when we know there are cameras, but not when we don't think there are? What about data protection and safeguarding laws? Is the church a model of good practice? When we start thinking that we're Christians, we're above these restrictions that are for people who don't know any better, where do we start to draw the line? What about refusing to listen? That could be to teaching we don't like. It could be to correction, somebody whose opinion is different from ours, or it could be to correction if we're sinning. It could even be refusing to listen to God. Do we actually seek God's will, or do we just assume we know what it is? Corporate sin, the sin of the whole church, is made up of millions of individual sins, and millions of individual sinners. And all of us contribute. It's a bit grim, isn't it? I'm sorry about that. But this is what confessing is. It's telling the truth. The second step is to accept responsibility for our actions. And in an act of corporate repentance, this means the actions of the whole body. Nehemiah and the Israelites do this. They say, we and our ancestors have sinned. Now, everything in us screams about putting our hands up to things that we didn't personally do. But the body of Christ is the body of Christ. We can't do without the hand or the eye or the foot or the arm. And we have to take responsibility for the hand and the eye and the foot and the arm. Why is this so important? I think we have to go right back to the beginning to understand this. When God finds Adam and Eve in the garden, after they've eaten the apple, God asks Adam... Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam confesses that he has. Rather grudgingly, though, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. In one sentence, he tries to shift the blame, not only onto the woman, but to God. I do sometimes think, what was the first sin? Just a philosophical question I ask myself. If the first sin was thinking the rules didn't apply to us, the second sin was trying to shift the blame. Whether we personally carry responsibility for an act or not, it is a positive act of repentance and restoration to accept our part 
in corporate responsibility for sin. We could do a whole seminar series on what that looks like. Maybe something to discuss in soul groups. But the third thing we have to do is to resolve to be the change that is needed. The people living in Jerusalem in those days did this in what I think must have been the most painful way imaginable. Many of the men had married non-Jews. The person who would bring up the children in the way of the faith was the mother in the home, largely because so much of it was bound up in the food laws. So marrying a non-Jew was potentially the end of that family following God. Even some of the priests, priests by heritage anyway, had wives who were not Jewish. Now we know that there are two women in Jesus' ancestry who were not Jewish, Rahab and, Ra and Ruth. But these women chose to join the Israelite people. Your God is my God, Ruth said to Naomi. So it was possible to become Jewish. God's plan was for all the nations to come. But at that time, in that place, the Jewish people had to separate themselves from the members of their family who were leading them into following other faiths. From things as simple as eating pork to having household shrines in the home. Those sparse words in verse 2, the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, almost certainly hide deep distress and lament. As families were divided, that day in Jerusalem was a tough day. It was a day for sackcloth and ashes. And yet, the people moved on from this heartbreaking demonstration of their determination to be different, to worship. How can they have done that? How do we move from despair at our sin and the sin of the world to worship? Someone who knows a lot about worship told a class I was once in that he thinks of worship as us being real together before God about who God is and who we are. Think about it. Us being real together before God about who God is and who we are. Break it down a little bit. Let's look at us together before God. We can worship on our own, on a mountaintop, Andrew's favorite place, in our room, my favorite place. But God put us in a family for a reason. We complement each other. We're made to live in community. And worshiping together is a special blessing. When we're struggling with worship ourselves because of pain or sorrow or doubt, simply being with others worshiping is an act of worship in itself. 
And we don't just worship God. We bear witness to each other of who God is and what he has done for us. We serve one another. We encourage one another. Heart by heart, Jesus is enthroned, just as he is in, as he is in heaven. And so heaven comes down. The Spirit is present in our corporate worship in a special way. What about us being real about God? When we confess the truth about God, when we realize and affirm that everything about him is good, everything about him is holy, everything about him is just and merciful, everything about him is creative, Everything about him is beautiful. We could go on forever. When we realize that everything about him is loving, that's when we can't help but worship. And finally, my lecturer's phrase brings us back to confession, us being real about who we are. Because only when we knock ourselves off the throne of our hearts can we truly place God on that throne. Only when we understand that we're creatures can we thank our creator. Only when we realize that we're not holy or righteous can we grasp the grace of a holy and righteous God loving us. of loving us so much that he actually stepped into our world and became human in order to make a way for us to come to him. Only when we know we need a savior can we welcome him into our hearts. Only when we shed tears of sorrow over our own sin do we feel the tears of joy of the Father on our cheeks as he embraces us, prodigals that we are, and welcomes us home. We reach the heart of worship when we recognize that we have nothing to bring, but God has everything we need. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God needs to repay him? For from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.